So, uh, what a pleasure, I have to admit. This is the first time that I am speaking in the Low East Side. This is the first time I'm in the Low East Side since Schmilke Bernstein's closed down. <laughs> and uh, um, I think I bought things for my lift there at Strell here. But otherwise, you know, the Low East Side is, uh, you know, obviously an area of tremendous. Uh, you know, historical importance and um, very limited parking. And uh, so uh, it really gave me a chance to see the neighborhood over and over again as I searched around for just my place in the world. You don't always know where your place is, you know, but this much is clear. There's nothing that you're supposed to get that you won't get. I was uh, at a supermarket in Yerushalayim that is notorious for not having a lot of parking. And it was a perfect spot. Just promised perfect, right for the exit, you know. And uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a hazard, you know, so I decided I'm going to turn around so that I can back into the spot. And as I did, somebody else came in and took it. So the person I was with said, you know, oh, look at that, they took your spot. I said, if it was my spot, they couldn't have taken it. <laughs> if they took it, then it wasn't my spot. Because there's nothing that you're supposed to get in this world that you're not going to get. Yeah? And uh, we, we get upset. It's, a, it's a, an amazing thing to me. I, and, and it's a difficult thing for me to understand. This girl went out with this guy for a few weeks, maybe a few months. I don't remember exactly how long it was. It was a significant period of time. And she decided that this guy was definitely not for her. And then a friend of hers went out with him and got engaged. And she was so upset. I said, why are you upset? He said, Cause, you know, because she got engaged. I said, but you didn't want that guy. You know, that was, you, know, you, you threw him back in, you know, to the water. It wasn't something that you wanted. How could you be upset if somebody, you know, took, took something that you didn't want? You know? It's just part of our mentality. You ever see when you're, you're I forgot which card game it is, you know, maybe it's rummy, you know, you, you throw out a card. And every time you throw out a card, the other person goes, ah, takes your card, and you're like, I want my card back. You, know, you throw it out. You didn't want it, you know? But uh, we have this constant sense uh, that I'm not getting what I'm supposed to be getting, you know? Um, I remember a Peanuts cartoon. Rabbi Tversky wrote an entire book on Peanuts cartoons, so I, I consider this among the Akhrim. Yeah? So there's a Peanuts cartoon where... Uh, Linus tells Lucy uh, that everybody has been put into this world to make people happy. She stops and thinks and she says, there's a lot of people out there not doing their job. <laughs> That's our topic for this evening. It's peace of mind. Yeah? And the reason we don't have peace of mind is because we're always so sure that we're not getting what we're supposed to be getting. We're always looking towards the other person and saying, you know, look at what they have. How come I don't have this? How come I don't have that? It's a, it's a sad reality. But if you look around, you see people who seem to have everything. If you dig down a little deeper, you see there's more to the story that you didn't know. You know? And things start to come out. Um, I remember when we had six children, you know, so my wife used to joke. She says, well, you know, you would never leave me with six children, you know. And then we saw someone get divorced with six children, you know. So 
So then we had seven children. She says, well, I'm not going to leave you with it. Anyway, this went on for quite a number of years. Anyway, you know, and each time you looked around, and these people were like the perfect family, married for 20 years, 25 years, wonderful things. And then all of a sudden, you suddenly realize you don't know everything that's going on. You don't see everything that's going on. And so therefore, there is a approach to life where I look around at everybody else. And when I look around at everybody else, this is a guarantee for an unhappy life. Because I look at what everybody else has, and I think that that's supposed to be mine. Yeah? Peace of mind. Interesting. When we talk about simcha, talk about happiness. Yeah? So you know, the Orchid Sadiqim presents Midos and their flip side. So they'll have a parak on gaiva, egotism, and then they'll have a, the, next, the next chapter, the next section will deal with anova, humility. You know? And they'll have uh, anger, and then they'll have uh, ratza, you know, where everything is, you know, you don't get, you don't, you don't get excited about anything. Yeah? And it's always the flip side. <coughs> he has simcha. And I'd imagine that the flip side of that would be atzvus. It's not. It's not sadness. The opposite of happiness is not sadness. It's daiga. It's worry. It's concern. Yeah? People are always nervous. You know? Now, let's face it. If you want to be nervous, you can be nervous all the time. There's always something to be nervous about. Yeah? Um... Things you haven't even thought about. Spontaneous combustion. <laughs> where for no apparent reason, and this has been documented, a person will suddenly burst into flames. And they tell a story about a guy who's working on the street, and he notices that his foot is on fire. You know, And it takes a while to put it out, because they don't even know what's causing this, but the body is burning up itself. They found the fellow whose entire outline in ash, and his clothes were untouched. You know, He just burst into flames. That's so awkward, you know? And, and I don't know how many of you are concerned about this, but maybe it's something you should start thinking about, that what do I do if I suddenly burst into flames, you know? Uh, there's lots of stuff that you can worry about, things that come crashing out of the sky. Um, in the 1970s, I remember Michael Medved wrote a book together with David Walachinsky called The Book of Lists. Um, I'm a fountain of worthless information, by the way, and this book was just perfect for me. It's just different lists of different things. So one of them was lists of things that come crashing from the sky, you know, and how people were, you know, in a situation where, you know, all of a sudden, like this, you know, gigantic rock would come crashing down through their ceiling or something else would go on or something like this would happen, you know. And uh, you never know when you'll just be walking on the street and something will come crashing out of the sky and uh, crush you. So there's something to worry about, you know? I can go on, you know? Now, you might think some of these things are a little outrageous, but if you have ever bought a lottery ticket, you know that your odds are better of getting hit by lightning than winning the lottery. So you should certainly be worried about getting hit by lightning. That's nothing. More people die from falling out of bed than getting hit by lightning. So you should certainly worry about falling out of bed and dying. <laughs> you know? And so the list goes on. And if you want to worry, you can worry all the time. 
And if you think that everything is fine and there's nothing to worry about, then you obviously have not heard about catastrophic illness, where suddenly in some kind of disease, you know, you get some kind of illness and it's not covered by the health fund, you know, uh, or it's covered by Obamacare and you're already bankrupt from that, you know, and uh, suddenly you end up having to use up all your savings, all your money, and everything like this on this, and, you know, in the end it's still not enough money and you have to, like, take the hospital staff hostage with a machine gun, you know, until they treat you. And um, I, these things have happened. Anyway, so, uh, so you want to worry? The, the opposite of happiness is daiga. People worry. And if a person worries, there's no limit to the amount of worry. But a person who is Ezehu Ashir, Hasanech Bechelko. You know, who's wealthy, if you're happy with what you have. You're happy with what you have. Because, you know, you're going to spend your whole life worrying about what you don't have. There's a story of this fellow who got into a terrible motorcycle accident and became a quadriplegic. And they said, surprisingly, he was a very happy person. And they said, you're in such a terrible situation, how could you be so happy? And he said, I used to be able to do 20 million things. Now I can only do 2 million things. So I could spend my time focusing on the 18 million things I can't do, or the 2 million things that I can do. What do you want to look at? You know, you can look at what you have, or you can look at what I'm worried I'm not going to have, or what I'm going to lose, or what's going to happen. Most things are not under our control. And if we do not appreciate this, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will send us opportunity after opportunity to experience the fact that things are not under our control. Yeah? You have very little choice in this world. We talk about free choice. You have very little choice. You can't choose if you're going to be strong or weak. You can't choose if you're going to be healthy or sick. You, you really can't choose if you're going to be rich or poor. Right? If you're, you know, we, we all know people who are not the best or the brightest and they're rich. And we know people who are very intelligent and they just can't make a living. The Eben Ezra said, if I sold tachrichin, people would stop dying. And if I sold candles, the sun would never set. You know, he just had no luck when it came to Parnosa. You know, I, I, this guy, his uh, father passed away and left him in Yerusha. And there was this fellow who did online trading. Like, he was a day trader. And as soon as there'd be a blip and something would go up, you know, he'd quickly buy it or he'd quickly sell it, you know, like this. And he said, if I have, I have 10 clients. As soon as I come to you, the price goes down. He says, I put you at the end, I put you in the middle, I put you at the beginning, doesn't matter where I put you. As soon as I type in your name, it drops. You know? What are you going to do? This is because the guy is any less intelligent than anybody else, or any less deserving, or... You know, you have very little choice in this world. You know, relationships. You can't choose whether your parents are going to be reasonable or unreasonable. Trust me, they will be unreasonable. Yeah? You cannot choose if your spouse is going to be reasonable or unreasonable. Trust me, they will be unreasonable. You can't choose whether your children will be reasonable or unreasonable. I guarantee you they'll be unreasonable. Yeah? 
your neighbors are unreasonable and your boss is unreasonable and everybody in your life is unreasonable. Unreasonable being defined as what I once saw in a bumper sticker, be reasonable, do it my way. You know what I'm <laughs> so you're going to find that, that you're surrounded with people that, you know, it would be nice if everyone did what I wanted them to do. And if my happiness is going to be dependent upon other people, I'm going to be very unhappy. Because I cannot control how people act, and I cannot control events, and I cannot control things in my life. The only control I have in this world is how I choose to relate to things. And therefore, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through. How dramatic is that possible? I had a friend I went to high school with. His father was in Auschwitz, and his father escaped with two other people, but they couldn't get very far. And eventually, they hid up, hid out in this abandoned house, and uh, the Nazis were searching for them with dogs and, and you know, and troops. <coughs> and everyone was so nervous. And he found yarn, and he started to. Uh, darn himself a pair of mittens. And they said to him, what are you crazy? The Nazis are going to find us and they're going to kill us. He says, listen, maybe they'll find us, maybe they'll kill us, I don't know. If they do kill us, so, I found a way to keep myself busy. And if they don't kill us, I'll have a pair of mittens. <laughs> anyway, the Germans found them, beat them terribly, and dragged them back to Auschwitz. He survived the war. And at, towards the end of the war, he would see the other two guys and go <laughs> with his mittens that he made while everybody else was just worried. What are you going to do? I can't do everything. I can't control events. But I can... When I used to run NCSY, people got me these different posters. There's one poster that was probably, you know, I, I remember to this day, poignant. If they're running you out of town, grab a baton and make it look like a parade. You know? I can't control events. I can't tell you what's going to be. The, what I do is I look at the world and I say, if my happiness is going to be based on everybody else, like Lucy said, there are a lot of people out there not doing their job, then I'm going to be very unhappy. I'm going to live a life that's unhappy. But if instead I live my life trying to be the best person I can be and enjoying everything that I have... Do you ever see people go away on vacation and they spend the last three days of the vacation worrying about the fact that they're going to have to go back and their vacation's going to end? You know? I don't know how many of you had relatives like this who when you go to visit them, they would spend the whole time complaining how you never come to visit. You know, and I'd say, okay, but I'm here now. You know, yeah, yeah, but the, how often do you come and when do you come and why don't you come over here? You spend the whole time worrying about the fact that the person's not there, which, by the way, is a good way to get people never to visit again. You know, how could be they just didn't like me and they were trying to chase me away? But, you know, when you, when you look at situations like that, why can't I enjoy what I have? We're so worried. Am I getting what I'm supposed to have? I heard a story in, in the Telzi Yeshiva. The Yeshiva was about to make Kiddush. 
and he's looking around the room and he stops and he puts down the becher and he walks to one of the tables and he sees that on each table there was a plate of cake and this one boy took a piece and put it on his plate the Rashiva said to him you're afraid you won't get a piece of cake? he says put it back on the plate I guarantee you you'll get a piece of cake don't worry about it don't worry about it you know and uh, trust me you don't want me to lose this yeah. Chaim Reisworth was given one of the Shema Brachas at a chasana, and uh, <coughs> somebody hands him the sitter to make the bracha. So afterwards, someone said to him, Chaim, the Shema Brachas is a Gemarang service. You know Shas Valpeh. What did you need the sitter for? He said, I needed it to know when to stop. <laughs> I would have kept going through all service. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to make sure I have to watch it. Anyway, so, um, uh, you know, people are waiting. No, I'm not gonna get. I'm not going to get a piece of cake. No. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There's an interesting relationship between Jews and food, you know. <laughs> it's a, a, a very intense relationship. And uh, since... Um, this election is interesting. I have to double check, but this morning they said that Hillary Clinton actually had 150,000 more votes than the popular vote. And nonetheless, Donald Trump won the Electoral College. The last time that happened was in the 2000 election when Al Gore and his running mate, uh, Senator Lieberman, had uh, more votes but, uh, but didn't carry the Electoral College. So, um, so I, I feel like I'll, I'll make reference to that last election. When Senator Lieberman was running, so you know he's an Orthodox Jew, you know? When he was first nominated, they said, are you really going to be able to be dedicated to this campaign? And he said, I will be dedicated to this campaign 24-6. That was his line. Now the truth is, he also did Jewish events on Shabbos. So he was staying somewhere in Miami, and uh, he walked to the shul. Now, being a good Orthodox Jew, he knows how to walk miles you know, on Shabbos without any problem. You know, the, the secret service people are huffing and puffing to keep up with him, you know. And he goes to David in the shul, and they made a kiddush in his honor upstairs. So, before Davening ends, they take the candidate upstairs, and they secure the perimeter, you know. Secret service people are, are there, you know. He's, you know, we've got, uh, we've got two people by the Kilgul, you know what I mean? You know, like, somebody by the herring, you got the herring, you know what I mean? Anyway, so he's upstairs, and suddenly they hear this thundering up the stairs. And they form a phalanx around their guy. And all the people come running up and go right to the food. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right past the senator, who's interesting, but he cannot compete with chop liver. Yeah? When they say the expression, what am I, chop liver? Halavai. Yeah? <laughs> Runs right past him, you know? And, uh, you know, so, so when it comes to food, you know, Jews, Jews have a, you know, a keen, keen sense of this, you know. Um, and people are worried. Am I, am I going to get what I'm supposed to get? Am I, am I going to get my portion? Will I get what's coming to me, you know? I'm, I'm worried I won't have, you know. And you can see this. You see this where people, people are nervous, you know. I won't get... So I've been at Kiddushin, and I see people run like they have never seen food before. 
Now I have to tell you, one of the first times that I was a scholar in residence at a Pesach hotel, it was a day in Cholomoed. I remember this day. I don't know why I remember this day, because it, it made an impression on me. I don't know if I was keeping score or not. Um, until davening, you had to get by with just coffee and cake. Then they had davening, then they had breakfast. Everything you can imagine. They had matzah brai, they had pancakes, they had waffles, you know, nine you know. They had, uh, you know, every type of fish, herring, lox, some pickled lox, pickled uh, this, you know. They had uh, every type of eggs that you could possibly want, every type of cheese, they had cereals, you know, whatever you wanted they had, you know. It was the breakfast. When the breakfast finished, you also had to get by with just coffee and cake until lunch. <laughs> lunch, they had every milky dish you could imagine. They had lasagna, they had, you know, three different types of fish. They had, uh, you know, uh, uh, they make pasta now, you know, they have pasta. They had, they had uh, you know, uh, uh, makishas, all kinds of things that they had, you know, soups, two different types of soups and things, you know, unbelievable. And then the desserts and all that. When that finished, the tea room opened. <laughs> Nobody ever had a cup of tea in the tea room. You know, the tea room, they have every type of fresh fruit, every type of dried fruit, every kind of candy, every type of cake, ice cream, you know, every kind of drink, everything you imagine, you know. They closed that at 6 o'clock because then they had the cocktail party. Now, nobody actually uh, drank a cocktail at the cocktail party. They had shaving dishes of little miniature franks, of little, you know, stuffed cabbage, of little meatballs, you know. And, and, you know, and then they had dinner. And at dinner, you know, so again, you have like three appetizers and you have a choice of two soups. And then you had like, you know, roast beef and duck and, you know, and uh, chicken and, you know, and all kinds of different kind of things, you know and uh, a bunch of desserts. Then the tea room opened, and it closed at 12 for the Big Bash. Now, I don't know what the Big Bash was. I, I didn't make it to the Big Bash, you know. But what I found fascinating was that every single one of these places throughout the day, people went running up like they had never seen food before in their life, you know. And I see a kiddish at the end of davening, and you see people running running to go and get something, you know? I tell you, in Israel, we've really managed to do it differently. Because the Kiddush in Israel is they'll put out a few plates of unattractive cake and some bottles of soda that come in various fluorescent colors, you know? <laughs> if it's a really uh, you know, big event, then they'll put out Bisley with it, you know? And then you wait for the main course, which is a slice of Yushami Kugel with a pickle, you know? And I don't find anybody fighting over it, you know, to make sure, oh my gosh, I almost didn't get my pickle, you know. So it's really very simple, you know. You go to a, you go to a chasana, you know, all the Israeli relatives have already sat down and ate all the food during the uh, reception, you know. You know, you sit down there, you know, and they come over, they serve you a bareka. You have a choice of like three appetizers, they're all potatoes in different forms, you know what I mean. And he drips the... You know the uh, the uh, the uh, gravy on you, you know, and then they give you a choice of like you know, you know, you want schnitzel, you want uh, chicken, you want velada, you know what I mean, and uh, you know they they bring out whatever you know the thing is, and you don't really find people fighting over it so much. It's not the same sense of appeal, you know, but you see people running. I'm not going to get a miniature frankfurter, you know what I mean? What if the chaplain <coughs> runs out? What if there's no herring? I've never run for one of these kiddushim, you know? So sometimes people, they feel bad for me, they bring me a plate, you know? But if not, I wait till the crowd disperses and I go over. I've always found food. 
I've never found that, like, like the, although it looks like a swarm of locusts, they don't actually, do, you know, destroy everything. You know, there's always some food left, you know. But there's this initial, you know, when you, when you go to one of these hotels or like that, and there's a buffet, you know, and people come running up. There's not going to be any food. You'll get whatever you're supposed to get. Don't worry about it. I was at a chasana recently. And, um, you know, uh, I, uh, I ordered something and uh, it didn't come. It didn't come. And, and the person next to me was so nervous. It didn't come. Maybe we'll tell the waiter again. Maybe this. And that goes, I said, if I'm going to get it, I'll get it. Don't worry about it. You don't have to worry. I'm, there's nothing I'm supposed to get that I won't get. And eventually he brought it. Then the guy forgot his main. Oh, he was on spilkers the whole time. I'm not going to have a main course. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I said, you'll get whatever you're supposed to get. Don't worry about it. And eventually it came. Or Hashem. You know? So nervous. Most of the things that make us nervous are things that we're worried about, that we don't have to worry about. It will be there. You'll be taken care of. You know? I was uh, going through a particularly difficult time. I'm always going through difficult times, but sometimes I go through a particularly difficult time. I was going through a particularly difficult time, and I had a friend of mine who was a Hasidic, and he saw that I, I guess it was on my face a little bit that I was going through a difficult time. And he says to me, for Blavi Yitzchik was walking with his Hasidim, and he stopped and said to them, if I was a Kurdish Baruch you know what I would do? And they said, what, Rebbe? This is just what he's doing now. Why, you think I'm smarter than him? <laughs> and bam, it hit me. That's it. I'm smarter than God. <laughs> I know you created everything from nothing, and that was very impressive. And I know you do a lot of good things, but this instance, you dropped the ball, big guy. So let me step in and try to fix things up. You know? And, and I realized that's it. I think I'm smarter than God. God knows what he's doing. You know? When we Baruch Orbach, during his the week of his daughter's Shevabrachas, was in a crosswalk and was hit by an egged bus and killed. This was from Zalman's son, Tamil Chacham. And the family was sitting Shiva. And the Shiva of Eitzchayim comes, an old man on a cane, and walks in. Everyone's wondering, what does he have to say? He's going to give us an Chama. He sat there quietly for a few minutes, and then he says, No! Yeah. What did he say? He says, no. It's about 6,000 years now that Hashem runs the world. <coughs> that, was, that was his words of Nechama. And after he left, all the brothers were saying, what did he mean? What did he mean? And finally one of the brothers said, I'll tell you what he meant. This is a terrible kasha. Somebody <coughs> in the week, there's still a brachas, you know, it wasn't jaywalking, he was in a, in a crosswalk, and gets killed. It's a kasha. But it's not the first kasha in 6,000 years. You know? And the Ebush Tafir Velt, Kirsch Baruch who runs the world. And he knows what he's doing. So I was going through, you know, whatever difficult time it was, and someone says to me, you know, oh, aren't you nervous, aren't you this? And I said, no. Kirsch Baruch who knows my name, he knows where I live. He's got my file. He didn't lose my file, you know. And uh, he's going to come back to me a few years later. Oh, Arlovsky, you're still here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I forgot about you completely. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> Let me take care of that, you know. He knows who I am. He knows what I need, you know. It, it, it presupposes that I'm smarter than God. 
And I realized I would never want to be God. I don't like the hours. You know what I mean? <laughs> Forget about it. You know? Because Baruch Hu knows what he's doing. And a person who has that sense will never have to worry. He knows what he's doing and there's nothing you can do about it and I'm just going to have to wait and, and see what happens. And for the best. For the best. So, uh, so instead, we can look at our impact on the world around us. And instead, we can look and see rather worrying about me, about everybody else. I want to tell you a story. It's an unbelievable story. It is a touching story. It's, uh, it's in the first chicken soup for the soul. And it's such a powerful story. This guy has a new car. And he stops to get some groceries in this run-down run neighborhood. And when he comes out, he sees this kid wearing old clothes that are obviously hand-me-downs. They're too big for him. And he's staring at his car. And he says, you like the car, kid? He says, yeah, where'd you get it? He says, my father bought it for me. Uh, he says, my brother bought it for me. And he says, wow, I wish... The guy says, I know what he's going to say. I wish I had a brother like that. He says, I wish I could be a brother like that. So he says, you know what, kid, you want to go for a ride? He says, yeah, could we drive by my house? So he says, all right, he wants to show off to his friends he's in a fancy car. So he drives by the house, and he goes in, and he carries out his little brother who has polio. I can't walk. And he says, you see, Billy? His brother bought him this car. One day I'll buy you a car so it won't be so hard for you to get around. Do we want to have a brother like that? Or do we want to be a brother like that? That defines all the difference in the world. It's an amazing story. I am the only source of this story. If you ever hear anybody tell this story, they got it from me. How did I get this story? When I used to teach in our Sameach, I taught a uh, Parsha Shir in the intro program, which is supposed to be for the beginners. And my Shir was made up of beginners and students from the Mir and the Brisk who came to my Chumash Shir. Because even though I had to explain things in relatively simplistic terms and give some introduction, evidently what I was saying was considered chidushim enough that these guys really, uh, really appreciated it. So I had, a, I had a really mixed bag of guys, and both of them had felt free to ask questions during this year. One of the guys who came was Reb Nussin Sri Finkel's personal gabbai. He used to travel with him on the plane. He used to go with him to America. He would go around fundraising with him, take care of him. He would minister to him during the day and stay with him in his room and learn with him and, you know, whatever, whatever the Rashiva needed, he took care of. Now, the first part of this story is pretty well known. Yeah? Howard Schultz, the head of Starbucks, writes the first part of the story. He was with a group of major Jewish business leaders who came to Israel and they were meeting with people from the government and people from businesses and various professionals and they also met with certain religious leaders. And he writes, Howard Schultz writes the story, that he says, we went to meet with Nussan Sri Finkel, the Rashiva of the Mir, who at the time was suffering terribly from Parkinson's. And if you ever saw, it, when it was bad, it was bad. At the times his legs would lock and they would have to just like drag him forward. 
You know what I mean? And he would shake terribly. And he says, we were a little embarrassed. It was hard to look at. And he bangs on the table. And he says, my friends, you're very important people and I don't want to waste your time. Let's do this quickly. And he understood that that was really a backhanded statement. But okay. He says, what did we learn from the Holocaust? And everyone offered their different insights. That we need a Jewish state, never again. You know, whatever it is that we learned from the Holocaust. He says, I'll tell you what we learned from the Holocaust. We learned that five Jews could sleep with one blanket. You have the blanket, go home and share it. That's what Howard Schultz writes in an email. Now the truth is that it was an earlier Rosh Hashiva from the Mir who commented on this story. It's a Gemara which says that in the generation of Yehuda Bar Eloi, it was so poor that five people had to sleep with one blanket, but they were roi for Mashiach to come. Mashiach could have come in that generation. Even though five people slept with one blanket, ask from Chayish Shvalavitz, come on, how can five people sleep with one blanket? If you were a kid, did you ever have to share a bed with a sibling or with a cousin? And you get into a fight, you stay off of my half of the bed, you start fighting over the blanket, you get into a tug of war, you know, till one of them gets it underneath them and rolls, you know what I mean? And forget about it, you know? You spend the whole time, and the whole time is a tug of war. He says, Rechaim Shalom says, there's only one way five people could sleep with one blanket. Every time you sense the blanket is on you, you push it off to the next person. You want to, it's more important to you to make sure that the other person is covered than that you're covered. Yeah? So he says, you guys have the money, you have the resources, there's a lot of need out there in the Jewish community. You have the blanket, share the blanket. That's the part of the story. The Gabbai told me the other part of the story. And after Nelson's fee was Nifter, I told the story around, and they said, where'd you get this story from? And I said, I heard it from the Gabbai. He how could it be you're the only one in the world who knows this story? Can't be. So I went back to the mirror, I found him, and I asked him, he says, yeah, 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 I was there. Howard Schultz came back by himself sometime later. And he went to the Blessing Suite and he took out a check and he signed it. And he said, Rabbi, fill it out for whatever you want. At the time, the budget of the Mir Yeshiva was $2 million a month. Do you know what it was for Blessing Suite to have to schlep around for his health to try to raise this money? Forget about the fact that then he couldn't be there for the Talmudim and he couldn't be there for the yeshiva. Do you know what a tremendous burden this is? Howard Schultz wouldn't care. You write that right now, $2 million, it wouldn't have made a difference to him. It would have given him a month breathing space. Nassim Sri said, I can write down anything I want. He writes it down for $1,200. It tells Howard Schultz, Take this check across the street to that store and buy yourself a pair to fill in and put it on every day. That's what you can do for me. Because we look at people and we wonder what can they do for us instead of wondering what I can do for them. I was in uh, England. I was asked to speak at a dinner for a... uh, a lord 
Sir David Alliance. It was a dinner honoring him. And there were various lords and, you know, noblemen. And there was a guy called the Colonel who had a, um, a walrus mustache and a monocle. I, I think he escaped from Clue. I don't know where this guy came from. <laughs> you know? They would call him the Colonel and go, yeah, very good, very good. Oh, yeah. It was unbelievable. It was upper crust. You know, uh, aristocratic uh, English society. Not my usual crowd, you know. <laughs> and I met this one fellow there who I found out later is worth like a hundred million pounds. You know what I mean? He owns like, you know, he owns a, a lot of real estate, you know. Like the story they tell about these three, te- these two Texans and the, the three Texans and this one little Jew, you know. The first Texan says, I got myself a ranch. And I called the big W. And I got me 10,000 acres. Next guy says, I got a ranch. I called the Red Ranch. I got myself 50,000 acres. Third guy says, really? And I got a ranch? Oh, it's uh, 100,000 acres. Called the Ponderosa. So I turned to the Jew and says, what about you? He says, I've got 10 acres. They all start laughing. 10 acres, what do you call it? Downtown Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> So this guy uh, owned a lot of downtown London, you know. And he says, you know, maybe you'll come and, and, you know, maybe we could come and talk. Here's my private number, you know. So I said, listen, I really, I I got stuff to do, you know. I was going to go to Harrods and look at the food court, you know. He says, no, no, I'll send my Rolls Royce. I'll pick you up. I'd never been in Rolls Royce. Sounded interesting. So he picks me up, brings me to his office. And we sit down. And he starts to talk about his wife and his children and how honestly he's neglecting them. And he's running around with models and starlets, you know, and he's doing this and he's doing that. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, what are you, crazy? I said, you're going to lose everything you have. You're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose your kids. You know, for what? Is that the life you want? I mean, come on, look at you. You're pathetic. You know, this is what you're doing with your time. What if you lost your family? You'd be happy. You'd be running around at parties and stuff like that. You're not a young man anymore. What kind of way is this to live? He says, you're right. I said, don't tell me I'm right. I know I'm right. What are you going to do? Tell me now what you're going to do. Well, I said, you're going to start having a Shabbat dinner at your home. That's what you're going to do. You're going to make kiddush. You're going to make hamotzi. You're going to sit with your family. You know, this is what you're going to do. You know? And I started setting out some other things. And he says, well, it sounds good. I said, no, no, you, you're missing, under, you're not understanding me. This is what you're going to do. And he stops and he says, you know, you're the only rabbi who ever talked to me like this? I said, that's because I don't need your money. Everybody else is worried for your money, so they all tell you what you want to hear. I read an article once in, uh, I think it was Discover Magazine, where they said that rich people get worse medical care than middle class people. Because the rich people dictate to the doctors what they want, and the doctors listen. And he told the story about this one important businessman who had some kind of growth on his spine, and his doctor was taking care of him, and uh, said to him, like, you know, uh, <coughs> you know, he has to have an operation, and the guy said no. So he had, like, two burly guys who would, like, pick him up and, and carry him around and do whatever he had to do with him, you know. So he brings in this expert, you know, this, the guy who's writing the column, and he checks it out, and he says... You need an operation now. 
He said, I can't do it now. I have, a, you know, I have these meetings setting up and I have a business trip. You know what I mean? In two weeks. I said, no, no, no. Now. So I'm going to do this now. Well, you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. You're going to do it now. And the guy said, well, this is, and, the, and, and his doctor was like, well, yeah, he's an important man. He goes, you want to be paralyzed? You want to be paralyzed? So you're going to have the operation now. And he, and he insisted that he have the operation now. And uh, he says, thank God I was able to save his ability to walk. He says, but you imagine he's going to tell people when I'm going to have the operation, I'm not going to have the operation. You know? Sometimes you have no choice. You have to give in to, you know, medical expertise, even though it doesn't fit in best with what you want. I was in America, and I got this terrible attack. Terrible attack. I thought it was maybe some, you know, like I had terrible heartburn, but I was lying on the floor. I couldn't move. I was moaning and groaning, you know. I, I, I ran a bath. I lay in the bath. I just, I, I couldn't stop. It went on for hours, hours, the whole night. And I called up a sister-in-law and I said, like, you know, maybe, you know, you could go and get me some antacids because I just can't, you know. She said, this is not antacids. She called an ambulance. They take me to the hospital. They do a ultrasound. So your gallbladder is twice its normal size. We have to take out your gallbladder. I said, I, I, I can't take out my gallbladder. I have, I'm the rule of speaking to her. You know, I'm speaking tonight, and I'm flying here, and there's that, you know. Now, the surgeon, who was not Jewish, looked at me like I was out of my mind. The gastro guy, who was the firm guy, knew who I was, you know, and he says, he says, listen, I can send you on your way. But you're going to have one of these attacks in the airport. You're just going to lie on the ground moaning and groaning. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to speak anywhere, you know? So I said, okay, how long does the surgery take? So it'll take about a day, you know? I said, okay, then I can take over my trip. I can keep going. He says, sure. He said to my brother, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> you don't just pull out internal organs and you go on with your life, you know what I mean? What can I do? It came at a bad time, but that's where it comes, you know? So a person, a person can look at things and say, you know, do I want it to be my way? You know, I'm going to take it my way. And a person looks at it and says, what's in it for me? So here, this rich guy doesn't get the medical care he should get. This rich guy doesn't get the advice from a rabbi he should get because everybody's looking at him and say, what can I get out of him? And the Nassim Svi looked at him and said, I have a blanket to share with you. It's called Yiddishkeit. I want to share my blanket with you instead of just worrying about what I can get out of you. Because we're always so worried that I'm not getting what I'm supposed to be getting. That there's something that, that, that's in this world that was meant for me that I didn't get. But the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says that everything you're going to get is decided between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and you cannot touch somebody else's stuff to a hairbreadth. You'll never get anybody else's stuff. And if that guy took my parking spot, it wasn't my parking spot. And people who can understand this will have a much happier life. When we talk about peace of mind, yeah, I don't have to worry. Simcha is the opposite of daiga. You know, we think of simcha as, you know, you know, happiness, you know. But happiness does not mean, you know, joy or ecstasy. Happiness means everything <coughs> is good. It's, it's copacetic, yeah? 
I'm besimcha. Everything is good. Everything is fine. It's a it's an underlying feeling of security. And when I have that, then I have the ultimate peace of mind. I have nothing to worry about. Yeah. When a when a person could live their life knowing, I have what I'm supposed to have, and there's nothing I'm supposed to have that I'm not going to get. And you don't have to worry. I think the famous story with Zusha. You know, they made it into a song. You know. Zusha, every day he would say, Hashem, please send me my food. And they had a guy who was appointed to bring him his food, and he says, he doesn't appreciate that I'm doing this, so tomorrow I'm not going to give him any food. Okay? So Zusha sits down and he says, Hashem, please send me my daily food. So they knock on the door. guy was happy that Zusha did something for him, and he brought him, his, he brought him a meal. So not to worry. I'll get what I'm supposed to get. I never have to worry. You know? When I when I have that, what else do I need? Yeah. And so that brings us to the topic of this evening, which is of course technology. <laughs> this is a smooth transition. <laughs> what does that mean? That means that we have no idea what it means anymore to really have peace of mind. You know? Things are all around us. I fought for the longest time not to get a cell phone. Now, so that you appreciate this, right? When I say not to get a cell phone. You know? When I grew up, the only phone was the one in your house with a rotary dial that was wired into the wall by the phone company. There were no choices. It was only the, capital T, phone, capital P, company, capital C. That was it. And they controlled everything. Yeah? And that was it. If you wanted to have a little mobility, you bought yourself a long cord that you could, you know, attach so that you could walk a little bit away from the phone, and then when you went back, the whole thing tangled up together, and now you had even less room to move than you did before, you know? And that was, that was a phone. There were no cell phones. There was, uh, Dick Tracy had a watch, but that was about it, you know? There was no such a thing, you know? You, 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 that was the phone. And there was no call waiting. You know, call waiting, they came up with call waiting. Call waiting is... You know, I used to call somebody, and if they were on the phone, I'd get a busy signal. Now I get call waiting, and the person clicks on it and says, hello, I'm on the other phone. You know, I could have told that with a busy signal. You know what I mean? <laughs> All call waiting does is, when you're talking to somebody, you say, hold on, the other person might be more important and precious to me than you. So I'll leave you on hold. You know? But... Uh, you know, that's a, you know, there was no call waiting, there was no caller ID. If you missed the call, you had to call everybody that you know. Hi, did you call me? No, okay. Hi, did you call me? Another? No way to know, you know? And that was it. That was, that was your phone options. And when you went out, that was it. There was nothing you could do. There were pay phones. You had a dime, put a pay phone, call somebody. The phones weren't always available. So you had to find a phone. Today, you hear people say, how could you live without a phone, a cell phone? 
It's not possible to get by. Of course. Psychology Today had a cover story about how kids today are able to grow up. And one of the reasons they cited were because of cell phones. And it used to be I would arrange with somebody that I will meet you at a particular place at a particular time, and I managed to handle that. Now, you see two people. I'm over here. Where are you? I see you. Wait. No, where are you? What are you wearing? Wait, is, that, is that you? Okay. That's not the part that bothers me. After you see each other, they keep talking. Ah, so, okay. So, you're right here. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm coming over here. Hang on the phone. You, know, you see the person. You remember when people used to make lists? <laughs> they take a list, and they would write down a list, and they go shopping. Now you see husbands. I'm walking past the peaches. I'm going towards the oranges. I'm heading for the apples. You know, and you have to leave, read off everything that you want. Mm, yeah, I guess you could use that. You know, that, you know, that, you know. I used to shop in Machna Yehuda with those plastic salim. <coughs> with the sharpened handles that you used to dig into your hands, and I'd schlep back all the fruits and vegetables, and that was easier than trying to shop holding a cell phone in one hand. You know? But it's good, no one can do it. You know? I used to, uh, people would say to me, uh, they give me the address, i say, how do you get there? Don't you have a GPS? Don't you have Waze? I said, no, but I have a pencil. This is how we, <laughs> how we did it for centuries. We'd write down the directions. You'd go down three lights, and you'd make a right, and you'd go here, you know what I mean? Now I need a satellite coordinating me, because otherwise, how am I ever going to find it? Yeah? All I know is the only ticket that I got in the past 25 years was because I was following Waze. You know? And Waze tells me, go down over here, go to that, and ended up, I went through uh, something, I drove through something I wasn't allowed to, it was a right turn only, and I went straight, you know, and, and I said, but the, the arrow said to go straight, you know? I was like, I don't know about that, but here's a ticket, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I can't just write down the direction, I can't just follow it? So he said, so people don't become able to, they, they gave the example, you know, this one professor, he says, I hear this girl, you know, she's, she's, College student calling her mother goes, So I went to the cafeteria, believe they only had vanilla? You know? He says, Can't you go a day without calling your mom to tell her about what they had for lunch? You know? When I went to Israel back in 1909, so um, <laughs> we didn't have any cell phones. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't even have regular phones. There was a five year waiting list from Bezik to get a phone. You could go down to the central post office and make a phone call. It was about $8 a minute, you know? But you didn't make too many phone calls, you know? So what did you do? You wrote a letter. You wrote a letter. It took two months to get there, two months to get an answer. By then, you don't remember what you wrote. You don't know what they're talking about when they say it, you know? You know, you just did it so that people would get mail, you know what I mean? And uh, stuff like that. You just sit there and write it up. You had to rely on yourself. You had to grow up. Now kids come to Israel. They have to have a phone. They have to have texting. They have to have instant messaging. They have to get an answer in 15 minutes, or they'll write back in capitals. <laughs> Why aren't you answering me? Gets which mark said emicone. You know, it's like this. Gosh. So when they first came out with cell phones, my wife was pressuring me very much to get a phone call, a cell phone, and I said, "Why?" She says, "This way, people can reach you anywhere at any time." I said, okay, explain to me again. Why do I want a cell phone? <laughs> you told me I will never have another quiet moment in my life. 
I'll never be able to like just drive and you know and think and reflect because people will be able to call me all the time. Why would I want to do that to myself? And I managed to hold off for a very long time until I was driving my mother on the Jerusalem highway and my car broke down and I didn't have a cell phone and I had to run across traffic, you know, and try to find something to call, you know. And, and uh, you know, get it. So I couldn't stand up to my wife and my mother. That was too much for any man, you know, to be able to to, to go against. And I can tell you honestly, I would say about 99% of the calls are totally worthless. They're totally unnecessary. You know, you make them because you have the phone. Phone. If you didn't have the phone, they wouldn't be. They're not life and death issues. And yet, I can see people during davening. They're fine. Sorry, God, I just want to see because this might be an important call. I'm, I'm talking to God, but this one might be more important, you know? Oh, it's okay. Just want to check. Sometimes it actually is more important than God. I've seen people do this during Shemana Yasser. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's so important. My cell phone went off once when I was talking to somebody. Like, your phone's ringing. I was like, yeah. Now, aren't you going to take the call? I said, I'm sitting here talking to a real live human being. Why would I go and talk to somebody else because they're on the phone? Because that's the way we are. Technology has more control over us than people. You know? I was waiting online at the butcher before Yuntif. Place is packed. And every time the phone rang, they would pick up the phone and take an order. Even though we were all waiting online. So I finally went outside. I called in my order. <laughs> and came back waiting online. As soon as I was running, I picked it up. It was Gavaldic. You understand? But that's going to be more important. So people are losing contact. There was just a uh, cover story in Psychology Today this past few months about how marriages are falling apart because of technology. Not because of all of the people that end up meeting old flames and, and stuff like that on Facebook. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about people who, you know, uh, just get so tied in to their technology, they can't make eye contact. You know, they just sit there, they're always looking at their phone. And they're talking to people who are looking at their phone. And you can go out to eat and find two people who went out to eat, each one talking to somebody else on their phone. You know, except for me and my wife. We're the only ones sitting there, you know, and everybody else turning their phone, including the waitress, you know. So I got her number. Hi, this is table six. You think you can come over? <laughs> and we can place an order? But the technology takes us over, you know. I once got into a back and forth, forth with a blogger. I don't know how the guy does it. I would write an answer, and he'd send me back three pages. And I don't know, what, what, this guy must have no life whatsoever that he's got the time. And, and I, I said, I'm going to follow this through. It took days. I just kept writing and writing, you know. My kids, they all, they all text. They all text, you know. I keep sending me these texts, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't have the skinniest fingers, you know. I'm sitting there trying to answer this. And so finally I figured out, if you push the little phone picture... You can talk to the person and say the same thing that it was taking me 20 minutes to type in one minute. And people don't want to do that anymore. It's the technology. It's very exciting. It's bells and whistles. 
You know, where, where I, I, I've been to schools where everything has to be a video. And it might just be a video of someone who's in the room giving the speech that they would have given in person, only now it's on a video, so people are more willing to look at it. They'll watch it as a video. You know? Oh, come on. You go to a chasna now? Can you see what's going on under the chuppah? Only if you can get to the photographer and look at his little screen. You know what I mean? Otherwise you can't see what's happening. No, we'll watch it afterwards. And we miss life, and it's zooming us by because we're letting the technology take us over. I was in Aiden Kedushin! And the, and the video guy wouldn't let me see the handing over of the ksuba and the give me the ring, which I'm supposed to do. And I'm trying to get in there. And he says, get out of my way or I'll knock you over. <laughs> I said, take your best shot. <laughs> but uh, it's just amazing. You know, and we let these people do it. We let people take it over. You go to a chasana. You know, and uh, you go in, you have your first course, and then you wait, you know, an hour and a half till the photographer finishes all his pictures, and then they come out, it's nice, you come home from the house at about 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, but now they put out those little coffee cups that you could take with you home, that's very nice, you know, but it's like, for what? Because of the pictures? Doesn't make a difference anymore. A photographer told me that, you know, what they started to do now is they take all the family pictures without the chas and kala, they just leave a space, and they Photoshop them in. He said, that's nothing. He says, who do you want to dance with the Jachasana? You know, Vivarim um, Kutla, I'll put him in. I'll put him right there in the circle with you, and you'll be dancing with the Chavetz Chaim at Jachasana. You know what I mean? I said to myself, wow. When Aaron started Lakewood, they made up a piece of stationery, with a little, little drawing. And he looks at it and he says, what's that? He says, that's the yeshiva. He says, there's no tree over there. He says, I know, for symmetry, you drew another tree. He says, it's Shekhar, take out the tree. No, it's not a problem. I can make you dancing with Ravaran and the tree. You know what I'm saying? It's not a problem. Put him in. You know? And he told me, he says, you know, you can, you can remove blemishes. You can make the person, you know, look different. You can make them look thinner, you know? He says, sometimes when I do a Svartish wedding, he says, there's a, a, um, a app called Aryanization that makes the person look lighter and more Aryan. So that's beautiful, you know? Especially when you're dancing with a Vaji Yosef where you've just turned into a, you know, a Litvish or Russian Shiva, you know what I mean? But that's what it is. You know, we've, we've lost that sense of humanity. I, every now and then I get an email. Somebody says, so-and-so would like to friend you. I said, what does that mean? And so-and-so wants to be your friend. I said, oh, that's nice. Tell him to give me a call. We'll go out for a cup of coffee. He says, no, no, he wants to add you to his list of 600 friends on Facebook so you can look at his personal pictures. I said, I already have enough friends like that. <laughs> I'm looking for some real friends. You've got 600 friends? Gosh, if a person has two friends, they should count themselves lucky. You know? You've got 600 friends? You know? It's just absolutely amazing. You know? Um, I just wrote a post about this on my Facebook page. But, um, 
you know, people, people just let these things take themselves over. Okay, so what's the answer? Can we turn back the clock? We can't turn back the clock. I know a Rosh Hashiva who put a cell phone blocker in his base medish. He says, because he saw people taking out their phones, talking, you know, doing learning, doing this, you know. He says, that's it. Cell phone, cell phone doesn't work. You know? And I, I don't know if anybody ever missed any really important phone calls. They could always call the office if they had to, you know. But we become addicted. And you watch people, and they're always looking at their phone, constantly looking at their phone, instead of each other. Yeah? And people can just sit there. There's a yeshiva in, in Israel where they'll work with any problem. A guy has a problem with you know, members of the opposite gender, he'll work with them. A guy doesn't get up in the morning, he'll work with them. A guy drinks, he'll work with them. Whatever it is, he'll work with them. There's only one thing that you get thrown out for, and that is if you have a device that gets the internet. I said to him, why? He says, because our generation is no longer driven by tithes. Our generation is driven only by the desire to sit there and look at the computer for hours and hours at a time. People don't even get up. They just sit there, you know. They'll watch two seasons of prison break, you know. I only know this because I saw somebody do it. <laughs> he stopped to go to the bathroom and occasionally uh, takes something to eat, but otherwise he just chain-watched hours and hours. I didn't even know what this thing was, you know. Mashkiach and Yeshiva said to me, he says, what do I do? I have boys. Well, instead of coming to night's here, they go to an internet cafe to watch prison break. This shows you how old the story is. You know? I said, what's prison break? He says, it's the hottest show on TV. I said, what happens? He says, they break out of prison. <laughs> I said, how long can a show like that go on for? <laughs> he says, well, they broke out of prison, and now it's the second season, they're on the run. I said, oh, so then they arrest them, put them back in prison, and they have to break out again. And then ends up, I was right. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> you know? But it's like... Uh, you know, the, the, the logic, you know. So I said, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody just sit there and, and do this? So I brought it up at my Shabbos table, and people gave different answers. I said, I'll tell you what I think it is. Because it requires nothing on our part. You just sit there and let it hit you. And it's just total escapism. And you don't have to do anything. It doesn't require anything. You know when you read, you have to use your imagination. You have to imagine what the characters are like, etc. And a person who reads and really enjoys a book and then they make it into a, into a, a movie, they're very disappointed. Because that's not how I pictured it. You know? Uh, I know there was a tremendous backlash against the uh, Harry Potter movies. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It was a popular series of books that came out. Um, this woman, J.K. Rowling, wrote the first one on the back of napkins in a uh, luncheonette, and she wrote the last one in her castle in Scotland. So evidently quite a few people read this, you know. When they went into movies, it's not how I pictured it. You know, I'm very disappointed. Because at least it allows me to use my imagination to think to this. And now you just sit there, and things just happen to you. You let things happen to you. And you have no control over it. You don't know what you're going to see or what it's going to say, and you'll suddenly get a vision, and you have to live with that for the rest of your life because you'll never get it out of your head. You know? <clears throat> we lose real relationships. We lose people. We lose time. We lose everything. 
you know? This girl had a friend, she said to her, uh, I haven't seen you, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in any of the social media. So they got rid of my Facebook account, got rid of my Twitter account, I got rid of my Snapshot uh, account, uh, my uh, um, uh, Instagram account, you know, I got rid of my email, you know, I'm totally disconnected. So the girl says to them, what do you do? I said, what do I do? I finally have a life. She says, really? Can I use it in Candy Crush? <laughs> what else do I need a life for? Use it in Candy Crush, you know? Or whatever game is out there today, you know? This is what, this is what we do our time with. And we let ourselves get pulled into these illusions and worlds of make-believe. And people are typing by themselves in a little dark room to somebody in a chat room, you are my best friend. You understand me better than anyone. Big W. I don't even know who this person is. Could be some 45-year-old strange guy pretending to be a 17-year-old girl. I don't even know who it is. And I let myself get sucked into this world this illusion. You know? Yeah, it can happen with other things, too. It can happen. Guy said to me, I, 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 you know, spoiler alert in case you ever plan to read Harry Potter. Yeah. And book six, at the end of book six, Dumbledore dies. So this guy says to me, when I read about Dumbledore dying, I cried. And he looks at me and says, I didn't cry when my grandfather died. I said, why should you? You were more attached to Dumbledore than you were to your grandfather. You were more emotionally invested. You'd been with him for six books. How much time do you spend with your grandfather? You know? And we, can, we allow the, the dimion, we allow the fantasy just to take us over and, and, and go into this world of make-believe instead of being able to live reality. Real people, real lives. And it's a sad thing. They did a study of a thousand students around the world and they cut them off from all of their technology. They experience the same withdrawal symptoms as a person coming off of heroin or cocaine. That's the level of addiction. And that's why they write about people who keep half Shabbos. They keep Shabbos, but they text. They just can't help it. And then you see these people texting while they're driving. And I don't have to tell you the stories of what happens. You know, lives that are lost, the terrible injuries that take place. Because I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. Peace of mind means I'm okay with who I am, with where I am, with what I have. You have these news junkies who go to these news sites, they have to check it every five minutes like something just happened that I didn't hear about. You know, don't worry about it. Anything major happens, you'll hear about it. If there's a nuclear explosive, you'll either hear about it or it really won't make that much of a difference. You know what I mean? It'll all be over. You know? Everyone's so worried. I don't have to worry. Peace of mind, simcha. I know that I have everything that I need and the most important thing is me and how I relate to people around me. Instead, I want to share my blanket. Instead, I want to be that brother instead of have that brother. I want to be able to live my life where I know that I'm living it for real and I'm not living a technical um, experience. <coughs> I don't know if it's still around. There used to be a, a website called Second Life where you create an avatar of yourself and you give this person a job and you give them a family and you give them this 
<clears throat> people would spend hours a day playing their make-believe life and let their own life slip away. How can illusion ever be as important as reality? And all of the sins of mankind come from that sense of illusion. Yeah, Chava looks at the tree and decides, wow, that looks good, and it would taste good, and it would be enjoyable, and it would make me happy, and it's just an illusion. And it's those illusions that strip us of life and make it slip away. We uh, read this week about the beginning of the Jewish people. Leich Lecha. To go on a journey, to be able to go and accomplish something, to be able to live a real life. And that's what's changed the world. Every one of us is on that Leich Lecha. Every one of us is on that journey. Every one of us has an opportunity to make ourselves the best people that we can. And if we let ourselves slip away into a world of make-believe, at the end of our lives we'll have nothing to show for it but illusion, <coughs> but the high score in some game that nobody cares about, by, uh, by friends who may not even exist, 600 friends who want to look at your pictures, as opposed to having those one or two real friends who will be with you for the rest of your life, people who know you and understand you and care about you. Life is too short to let it slip away into an illusion. Let's take advantage of it while we have it. <laughs>